0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Performance at the University of Michigan Football, Fergus Connolly. Thanks for tuning in to episode 136 of the Pasty Performance Podcast. So today I have a take two, so not a part two, but a take two with Fergus Connolly. So, ridiculously early in the morning for Fergus, which I really appreciate. I will I say it a million times in the episode, but really appreciate him getting up at half two, two o'clock in the morning to uh, to speak to me, to get an hour, probably an hour and a half in uh, with all the little bits of chat going back and forth uh, before the podcast and after. So I really appreciate Fergus's time for for coming to the podcast and sharing his experiences, many experiences in many different sports, so I definitely think you'll get something out of this episode. So one common theme that goes throughout the episode with Fergus is his quote, how does what you do today affect the scoreboard? So I think that's a really nice thought to have leading into this, into this podcast with Fergus. Um, We also discuss his uh, background in computer science, and how that's affected his practice day to day in his uh, in his career so far. We we'll look at uh, communication, improving communication, and technology in sport, and what may be and um, what may be not useful for him in his, in his environment at the minute.
1: If we take take GPS as an example, you know, I get emails, I get questions all the time. What is the load, or what is the preferred load, the ideal? high speed running distance for whatever certain position in whatever sport, and it's just a completely wrong question to ask. You you need to figure out and ask what is the problem that you're trying to fix as opposed to starting with all of the different variables you have in front of you and trying to figure out how can you come up with something that's going to be useful. Your job in this industry is, in two words, it's problem solving. How do you improve the scoreboard, figure out what it is and then Let's use the technologies that are available to you uh, to solve that problem.
0: So, just before we get into the chat with Fergus, just want to say a massive thanks to VALD Performance, makers of the Nordboard, for sponsoring this episode today. So, lots of exciting stuff going on in Brisbane with the guys of VALD uh, as we speak. So, exciting times for the guys over there, and I know they are traveling the world, um, showing people the Nordboard. So, if you do come across them, make sure you check them out uh, at the event they're attending. So without further ado, we are going to get in straight into part one with Fergus Connolly, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Fergus Connolly, who is the Director of Performance at Uni of Michigan, Uni of Michigan Football. So welcome to the podcast, Fergus. Morning, Rob. Morning. I'm... Um, just want to thank you first for um, getting up ridiculously early. I'm still trying to get my head around it. I mean, it's eight o'clock here. We've been speaking since seven. You've been up since two, and it's now three. So, massive thanks for uh, for doing that for me. No but anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of um, the dreaded background on yourself and uh, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, thanks,
1: Rob. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so I'm director of performance at uh, the University of Michigan football team here, and, uh, in Ann Arbor, and, uh, been, this is my, going into my second season with, uh, Jim Harbaugh, who I'd worked with before the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers, and, um, yeah, we had a very successful year last year, and, um, hoping to go a little bit better, we've just finished, we've sent, uh, 11 players, uh, drafted last week, uh, going into the NFL, so, uh, my background originally was in, uh, back in Ireland. Uh, started off playing Gaelic football, was fascinated by, by sport. And, uh, I kind of fell into, uh, professional roles in sport. i originally, uh, started as a teacher. I did a master's in manufacturing, a PhD in computer optimization, but I'd used my time at university to, visit different coaches initially to uh, try and improve my own performance. I would just go to seminars to try and learn uh, and visit different experts, just always trying to, to get a little bit better. And when my own career ended, was offered a job. My very first job was with uh, Bolton Wanderers, um, just after Sam Allardyce era, and then uh, worked for the Welsh Rugby Union consulted for different clubs in, in the UK and Australia and in the US, um, Liverpool, Blackburn, uh, uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, Cleveland Browns, um, across all different sports. And, uh, finally, yeah, I ended up here at the University of Michigan.
0: So for us, um, ignorant, Guys in the UK, when it comes to college football, just give us a little bit of an insight into how big it is over there at Michigan.
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know I wouldn't have been aware of it either, so don't don't feel uh, uh, as though you're alone. But college football in the US is on a is just on a completely different level to even to the NFL. To be quite honest, I think the NFL, you know, most people in the UK or in Europe are aware of it. More so just because of the, the entertainment value and the broadcasting, but college football is a lot more accessible to uh, most Americans. Uh, the crowds we have, we have one hundred and ten thousand here every every single weekend. We I think we hold the record now for the number of consecutive one hundred and ten thousand or over one hundred ten thousand fans. We we hold the record for the largest attendance at a sporting event, uh, and that's a what's referred to as the big house, uh, Michigan stadium. Uh, And it's just, it's a completely different, different atmosphere. Uh, And what, what is, I guess, a little bit different to European venues are that there is no, there's no running track or anything. So the the fans are right on top of the, uh, of the the field or the pitch. And it's, uh, you know, so much, so much smaller and there's, so many more people packed into it so the atmosphere uh, the fact that uh, the kids aren't getting paid they are in scholarship but they're they're not uh, getting paid the, the it's just it's a, it's a very very different uh, atmosphere and um, yeah it's, it's a great challenge as well working with some of the finest athletic specimens that, that you will come across because I think something that you know people may not be aware of is you know, if college football was banned in the morning, the U.S. would win every gold medal in the Olympics. Just some of the particular the great athletes that you get the opportunity to
0: work with uh, is uh, you know very rewarding, very lucky. So, what was your what was your PhD in? Did you say computer science?
1: Computer, yeah, computer science, computer optimization, and uh, so it was, it's a long way from long way from performance, but I, I think one of the things that I think, you know, I, I get it. people question me on it quite a bit, but, you know, what? how do you end up with, you know, working in sports science, being one of the first to work in sports science and professional sport without a sports science background And it, I think it, the one thing that my, my teaching degree is probably, you know, when you think about it, not a, a drawback because most of the, the great coaches originally started as teachers, whether it was a Bill Walsh or a Vince Lombardi. Um, one guy who I had breakfast with one morning who was very generous with his time, Clive Woodward, pointed out to me that every single member of his World Cup winning staff originally was a teacher. Uh, I think it's because of two reasons. One is obviously the, the teaching qualities and coaching is teaching. But also the just the time, the availability that that they have to learn. Uh, that was a, a wonderful grounding in being able to deal with people. So my master's in manufacturing was a, a great advantage in understanding processes, flow. You know, even information management, uh, um, just organisation and structure. And then the, my PhD was a wonderful insight into the understanding. Understanding of technology, how it works, IT, um, the limitations, particularly of uh, technology and and programming. Uh, So those that combination of skill sets uh, and critical thinking uh, was uh, perhaps an advantage over perhaps others in the in the area, and then the fact that just a huge passion for sport and for learning about human performance. So those different areas, I think, just w- were a perfect storm and perhaps there is a, a learning opportunity for, you know, for colleges and universities who are preparing professionals for the, the performance industry or the sports science industry to, to maybe learn from those
0: uh, learning experiences I had. So we talked a little bit off air about, a certain certain piece of technology that you have or have not implemented in at Michigan. How does your background through your MSC and your, your PhD um, help help in that? Been able to critically evaluate the tech that you are or you are not implementing, not necessarily at Michigan, but over your whole career. So, one of the
1: you know, one of the, um, the approaches or maybe I suppose conclusions that, that I've come to a few years ago is that I, I'm not, and I say this, I, I've said this for years. I'm not interested in strength and condition. I'm not interested in sports science. Um, I could care less about, um, physiology. I'm interested in winning and I'm interested in how, how do we get, you know, how do we, I always ask the question, how is it going to affect the scoreboard? And, Work backwards from from that. Now you eventually get back to physiology, sports etc., but that's not where you start. And that's the opening question when it comes to to technologies. Um, whereas a, a lot of people, perhaps who, who I come in contact with, start with the technology and figure out, okay, uh, you know, how do I make the technology work? Um, you know, that's not really your that's not your goal. Your goal you know, you're not going to last in the industry long. You're not going to last in the business long if you can't affect the scoreboard. So that's where, first of all, my, my mindset works. If we take, uh, you know, the take GPS as an example, you know, I'll get emails, I'll get questions all the time. What is the load or what is the preferred load, the ideal high-speed running distance for whatever certain position and whatever sport? And it's just a completely wrong question to ask. Uh, you you need to figure out and ask what is the problem that you're trying to fix as opposed to starting with all of the different variables you have in front of you and trying to figure out how can you come up with something that's going to be useful. Uh, Your job in this industry is, in two words, it's problem solving. How do you improve the scoreboard? Figure out what it is and then Let's use the technologies that are available to you uh, to solve that problem. So it's, it's about, yes, you need to understand the technologies, you need to understand their limitations, and you need to have a number of them. But ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, solve problems,
0: fix problems, uh, improve performance. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. So why is it that, like you say, people often operate going the other way? One of the, the, Starting with the tech and then moving to the, the scoreboard? Um, I think, well, the, there are two reasons. One is that,
1: three reasons, that really. One is that uh, there's a tendency towards focusing on roles, not responsibilities. There's a, a social and a, a cultural uh, belief that specialization is better. And thirdly, there's just a, a human instinct, the FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we. If you look at any team, so so let's say a coaching staff or a head coach or whoever somebody takes over a team, uh, what they will do is they'll list all of the roles that they need, as opposed to looking at the staff they've got at the minute and looking at the responsibilities that are missing. So, you know, I've I've done audits for teams. I don't list the roles. I I look at the responsibilities (coughs) that they need and what they're missing, and. Rather than just brings a specialist in to fill a particular role, how can we perhaps upskill two or three people, to save employing somebody else and fill the responsibilities? Because the, the single biggest, one of the single biggest detriments to improve performance in a backroom is poor communication. Employing somebody else is not going to fix that. It's going to exacerbate the problem. You bring in another person. You bring in another ego, another person to be. Commun- it, it's rarely got anything to do with money. It's more to do with bringing another person into the backroom team that needs to be facilitated and managed. So that uh, focus on roles as opposed to responsibilities is uh, it, it, it is a major issue. the the um, The other tendency that we have, like I said, culturally and, and societally, is there's been a, a focus over the, the previous number of years on specialization, people who are, you know, GPS experts, uh, heart rate variability expert, or whatever, power, speed and power. The one that really kills me is a rehab expert, and no offense to those who have that title, but to me, that's just, that is, you just lost half your listenership there, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the reason it really annoys me is because what you've got, what, that to me is is a demo, of the failure of both athletic training or physiotherapy and strength and conditioning to communicate and meet in the middle and solve the transitional problems. Um, I'm not saying that there, aren't, there, there isn't the responsibility of rehabilitation, but it's certainly something that you can upskill uh, you know, a physical therapist or physiotherapist, whatever the title might be, um, to the return to play. And vice versa, you can upskill the strength coach into understanding more about, about the injuries. Um, but simply creating another role is not always the the best, you know, the best way. You can give someone the responsibilities of that. Yeah, you can call them what you like, but the idea of let's just add another staff member to, to take care of that is just it's idiocy in in my mind. But there's the the focus on specialization means. If it's not carefully managed, obviously it's not in every case, but if it's not carefully managed, all you've done is created another silo, created another person, created again another ego, uh, another network channel, another communication issue, another, as they talk in the military, another node that you've got to manage, which is not solving the problem. And then the last, you know, the the last issue is this need uh, to keep up with the Joneses or fear of missing out. You know, I, well... You know, the head coach's wife's hairdresser said that, you know, the team down the street have got a GPS guru. Why don't you have one? You know, we must get one. Uh, you know, this is where a lot of this does come from. So it's having that experience and expertise and the ability to sit down with the head coach and say, look, we're not going to do GPS. This is why. This is why it's not going to. Uh, be a major factor and for them to to trust you and and being able to present that. And more and more teams that I've worked with and um, that I've come across are not using GPS because um, for that team at that particular point in time, it is not uh, a differentiating factor and it's not something that's going to affect the scoreboard.
0: You just lost the other half of your listenership. <laughs> so for so for something that's so physical in football, why would you not use GPS? Um the
1: the ability of the the qualities that are needed to succeed are not purely physical. Um the the model that the model that I've used in and like I've, ri- I've written about, it. And it's the reason that reason that that I, that I wrote my book was to present, just explain a very, very simple version of a model I use, which is based on on four co-actives or or, or four uh, interlinked qualities: tactical, technical, physical, psychological. There, the foundation is health. So first and foremost, you've got uh, if you you know if you imagine a. Uh, everybody is a core-centric circle of health. The size of that circle reflects how healthy somebody is. That that health that core determines the length of the career any uh, an athlete is going to have. So you take a Tom Brady who's particularly healthy, you know, you'll have a longer career. You're more resilient, not just physically but psychologically as well. But uh, around that, then you've got four quadrants of so varying percentage. Your physical, psychological, technical, and tactical. We primarily only focus in this industry on the physical, or have done. The GPS only measures physical qualities. Yes, you can draw conclusions as to, you know, other aspects, but primarily we're only looking at the physical qualities. So, if that is the only thing you measure, whether it's with heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, biochemical means, or whatever, you're still only measuring one one. One of four aspects. It's not even one quarter either. You know, you you can't say that the physical qualities affect uh, a quarter of the scoreboard. Keep going back to this question: How does it affect the scoreboard? You've got psychological, you've got tactical, you've got technical qualities of an athlete. One of the problems with GPS, and it's not necessarily—I don't want to to just bag on GPS—but if that is the only thing you've got. And then that is the only thing that's going to be improved. Uh, and, you know, you you need to be able to assess the other uh, qualities, even if it's only subjective. And sometimes withdrawing GPS allows you to focus on uh, the other three areas better. Or withdrawing, you know, a, a physical measure allows you to focus more on uh, the psychological qualities uh Tactical qualities, the technical qualities, and again, if we start at the scoreboard and work backwards, you know where were we? Where did the team fail? Well, it was a tactical awareness or a tactical understanding. Well, you know, let's fix that. You know, GPS is not going to fix that for you. Focusing on GPS qualities are not going to fix that. How do we? How can we fix that? Um, so that's where the that's where the the modern challenge uh, comes. And even if a game is a physically dominant sport it
0: doesn't mean that you're failing on those physical qualities so you mentioned there about communication now it comes up a lot whether i'm chatting on the podcast for this or i'm at work or i'm doing this or that communication always comes up so in, a, in an organization like yours for instance or where you've been in the past how can communication be improved, and why is it such an issue? I was asked at a, I was asked at a conference once, and I, I
1: love these questions because they're, uh, they're you, know, you give a presentation for an hour, and then somebody asks you a question like, "Well, what's the one thing you would do?" and you feel like saying, "Well, have you not listened for, for the last?" <laughs> one summed up in a question, but the the answer, it, it, the question was, if there was one thing you could improve, what would you do? And my answer always is communication. I, I am incredibly slow to recommend adding anything to a problem. In most cases, you want to withdraw things. Let's improve the efficiency um, of what it is that we do. And that will improve the effectiveness. It's, uh, you know, what some people in the industry call the thoroughness, uh, uh the efficiency thoroughness trade off. So how can you improve the efficiency of what it is that you have at the minute? The, one of the great strengths of the old backroom teams or the original sporting backroom teams were the fact that there were so few people because it meant that you had fewer and fewer people you had to communicate with and, uh, having small backroom teams. So, you know, the famous photographs of the Liverpool boot room were three or four guys sitting together, possibly smoking a fag, having a cup of tea, uh, you know, uh, just chatting about you could fit them all in a boot room. That was the point about it. Whereas now, if you want to have a meeting, you've got to find the conference room, book it, make sure you get everybody in the room. You know, turn off phones and get so to try and get everybody together. And why that's particularly important is that uh, it is the guy in the boot room who knows that you know the, the player's uh, wife's mother is ill, and it's an incredibly valuable piece of information. But he's not in the room. You know, whereas years ago, when you had that small group, that knowledge was available. You could, you know, you weren't going to be as harsh on them as a practice. You need to have a word with them afterwards, things like that. So that's what communication is about. And this is still a people business. So the ability to communicate that. uh, One of the other challenges you have is because of the specialization, there is a certain amount of intimidation uh, in coaching and in coaches with all of this so-called science that's been thrown at them so with smaller background teams and better generalists you don't really have that people are more conscious of how they communicate and how they can get that across so you know that's uh, uh that's one of the key challenges that you face with bigger you know far bigger background
0: teams today from from my experience as as a player and a not a very good player, but as a player and a, a coach, was the influence and the importance of the kitman, And that just, the kind of um, boot room scenario that you just mentioned just reminded me of that. And the kitman was always the guy that <clears throat> everyone talked to because that was the first place you went on a morning. He knew everything about everyone, what was going on, how they were doing it, how they weren't doing it. Were they playing well? Were they unhappy? Were they happy? With having problems at home, um, that guy was the kind of hub of the club. Yeah, no. well, he stayed in his he stayed in his room, washing his kit, washing his you know washing the players' boots. But no one really tapped into the information that he was actually getting from every single person, from the manager down to the cooks, because they were going in and having a chat with him after they'd served the food. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I mean, if you if you want to know what's going on
1: in, in any building, just go down and talk to, you know, in the U.S., call the equipment manager or, or go down and speak to the kit man uh, or the, the, the tea lady. Um, you know, it, it, when I was at Liverpool, the, the girls there, they knew everything that was going on. Um, and partly because of the, the old skill that, again, is lost by sports scientists today. And it's. this isn't an old guy talking about, you know, it's just the nature of the way it is. Sports science now spends so much time looking at a computer as opposed to just observing. Well, you know, the tea ladies and the, uh, the, the kit man have the greatest skill of all, which is the ability to just observe. And they've got that, they observe and they see things and they see how people interact, they, the body language. You know, you, you'll hear them pass a comment to a guy about, you know, whether he's you know looking happy or sad on a particular morning, and they'll draw that information out of him. Um, and you know, Coach Harbaugh here at uh, at Michigan, one of the first things he did when he when he got here was uh, you know keep on. I, I think he had retired actually. Uh, uh, he put in manager of the, the kitman kidman John Falk who would spent forty years here at Michigan, and who had been here while he was playing. Um, and John still comes in every single day, and. Hangs around and helps out the, the new Kitman who Jim brought from Stanford with him, Gary Hazlett. Um, so it just goes to show you the strength of, uh, uh, or the, the understanding that he has of those roles, those people who interact with the players most often and essentially become uh, conduits, mirrors, and sponges for for the players. Uh, in, in a, in a casual or a, a non-performance setting. Uh, and, and, that role, those roles are, are invaluable, uh, incredibly important roles. And, you know, I know that even now when NFL teams are looking for, uh, you know, are looking at certain players in the draft, one of the people they'll speak to is the kit man or the equipment manager, you know, to find just casually, you know, what's player X like, what's player Y like, um you know, because, again, the players, sometimes the, the players assume that, uh, well, you know, or there's a subconscious approach that, well, look at it, you know, this guy is not deciding whether or not I play at the weekend, so I can be a little bit more of myself or, or whatever. So those roles are incredibly, uh, are, are invaluable to, to the performance of a
0: of team. So we're just gonna take a very quick break in the chat with Fergus. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we look at uh, kind of more of a common theme that kind of runs through the episode uh, with how does what you do today affect the scoreboard? And we look at uh, emotional load uh, and how that affects not only athletes, but coaches as well, Um, and the art of storytelling, which is an interesting uh, insight from Fergus. So just before we get into part two, so the second sponsor for the episode today is Fatigue Science. So Fatigue Science uh, are a, a company that I've been in contact with for a, a number of months now and I have my ready band on uh, as we speak, they their sleep tracker. So it's not just a sleep tracker uh, like a Fitbit but they also offer a almost like a consultancy service in the schedule optimization service so that basically will help to kind of inform practice uh, and sleep times to maximize predicted game time effectiveness. So in the Fatigue Science app, you'll get an effectiveness score. So that's basically a number which will predict your cognitive function um, on the back of the effectiveness of your sleep. So through that through that optimization service, they'll be able to predict that for game times and how you can optimize your sleep in the days previous to uh, to optimize that effectiveness for for game time. So I'd definitely encourage you to check them out. Um, again, lots of exciting stuff that they're that they're doing at the minute. Um, work with multiple clubs across the world, from Oakland Raiders. A few teams in the AFL, a number of Premier League teams, um, New York Red Bulls, Chicago Cubs, Seattle Seahawks, lots of different organisations across the world. So building a real reputation, um, as I'm sure you've heard on the podcast with Brandon Marcello, who talks very highly of the guys at Fatigue Science. So fatiguescience.com and on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So straight back into part two with Fergus, and I'll speak soon. So one thing I just wanted to touch on, and this is coming from the book, um, and it's it's not – I didn't read – I didn't have that access to these, these sections, but to have the um, – just have the titles of the, of the sections kind of lured me into finding out a little bit more. And one was the – well, two was the um, – and it came from the same uh, section was the training recovery myth and what does a player need to know and there were two things that came from that section that I thought I need to ask you about. I need to find out more. Would you be able to run us through? Sure. Yeah. Them, so, them two points. Yeah.
1: So just like the just taking a step back, the, the reason that reason that I wrote the book, put the book together originally was because uh, two two real reasons. One was that the years um, I've put together uh, my um, I guess philosophy, or my mindset on on how how teams win because you know there's so many one of the biggest challenges you have today is trying to figure out what's nonsense and what isn't and there's just so much so much information out there the other one is trying to figure out and trying to know who to listen to because there are you know there, there's so many uh, there are so many frauds out there who talk about you know this player worked with that player worked with when you know in reality you know, many of them have or have not so I wanted to put together. Uh, you know, my my philosophy, which again, like I said, is, is very much how are we going to affect the scoreboard? How does it affect the scoreboard? A, a way of thinking. And uh, it, they're all based on lessons I've learned from uh, coaches and, and players over the years. And one of the things that we lose, and it's the way that it's presented to us, is, is an understanding of the idea of a stimulus, you know, we the, the body learns everything is is a learning opportunity. So uh, whether it's a squat, whether it's adding to your squat, whether it's adding to your bench, that's a skill. It's a it's a, the improvement of a particular skill. It's like learning to walk, learning to create more force. Um, it's learning even at a cellular level, at a neural level. So all of all that the body appreciates is that it is receiving a stimulus. The whether it's training or whether it's recovery. So the idea that we uh, use, uh, you know, lift weights just to provide a stimulus to get stronger, and then we jump in cold water. That's going to you know recover as well. The body doesn't really doesn't doesn't identify all it identifies is a series of of stresses that it's put under, and it will adapt to those stresses based on the nature of the stress, the dose. Uh, And the timing of that dose. So cold water, um, at applied at different times, has a completely different effect. And that's one of the things that that I think we tend to forget. Forget. There's an idea that cold water is only used, for example, for uh, for recovery. Well, no, it can be used as a training stimulus. You can use it before training because you'll get asked the question, "Well, when should I use it? How long?" Well, it all depends on you know, it's it's like I said recently. The first two wor- two words to every answer is "it depends." It depends on do you want to use it before? Do you want to use it after? Um, do you want to use it locally? What is the effect that you're trying to get? So it's it, we need to just bear in mind that everything is a stimulus, and you can do anything at any time, depending on what it is that you you want to get. So uh, an example is you know here at Michigan. People want to, you know, we've spoken about using cryotherapy, but we're in Michigan. It can get pretty cold here. We don't need to apply cryotherapy to our athletes. If we were in Florida, yes, we could use it because it would have a completely different effect in a warmer climate. So it's, again, understanding where is your athlete coming from and what's the kind of, is it a short-term response? Are you trying to delay a reaction or are you trying to facilitate? Um, So... The idea that certain things just fit into, and it's the same as with strength training. You can weight train for recovery. You can run for recovery. Uh, it's knowing when to do it, and it's knowing how much, and it's it's considering that it everything as a stimulus on the body to elicit
0: a certain response. And that's that second section. So that, and this was the one thing that I. Was really interesting, and that was what does the player need to know? Yeah, so and how much we, well, how much you tell them, how much you don't tell them. So one of the just one of the things that, that we,
1: we should bear in mind as well as so everybody listening to this podcast, and you know every the majority of the people that we speak with in the industry, we're interested in learning, interested in improving, but not everybody that not all of the athletes we work with are like us. A lot of them don't don't particularly care. Um, you know, one of the things I studied was neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And, you know, you, you will learn through that that there are a lot of people who don't particularly care. If you're selling a car to somebody later on today, you know, you might meet somebody who comes in and the first thing they're going to ask you is, well, what's the horsepower? What, um, you know, what is the engine like? What is it? Um, what kind of engineering is used? The second person might ask you, well, you know, what color is it? You know, what does it look like? third person might ask you what is it how does it handle so they're all looking at completely different things well it's the same with your athletes they um are interested or need to know certain certain different things to achieve the outcome that you want so don't assume that you know you'll hear the phrase well i teach them and and i really want them (laughs) No, you don't need to tell them everything. They don't need to know everything. If they want to, yes, absolutely. But don't assume that you have to um, you know, teach them as much as you know. It comes back to what do you need to tell them to achieve uh, to affect the scoreboard in the way you want to affect it. And the reason that this is so important is, um, you know, there is experimental capacity that every single athlete has. There is only so much that an athlete can will take in and want to take in, uh, and I hate to break it to those of us in the you know the physical preparation industry, but you know our stuff is not the most important uh, when it you know compared <laughs> to tactics and compared to the coaches you know. So understanding that certain players need to spend more time focusing on. Uh, uh, understanding tactics or understanding some learning spending that you know that particular week focusing on a technical ability they're trying to uh, let's prioritize and tell the player as much as they need to know to achieve the to achieve the outcome it's an incredibly uh important area of understanding for 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 coaches in in what it, in what we do that's not being disrespectful to the athlete it's, it's it's more recognition of again there's a spare mental capacity there's a spare mental uh, battery or, or bucket or whatever way you want to look at it that the athlete has that particular week to learn uh, what is the priority for them and very often it's not uh, knowing the micronutrient breakdown of you know <laughs> of broccoli that particular week it it, it, it is a new uh, scheme and new pattern
0: a new install that they that they have to learn I've told this story before Probably quite a while ago, and this, but it kind of resonates with this situation. And I think it was a a scenario when I went to see uh, a coach in Manchester, and he was working with the World Speedway champion. And I don't know if I guess they don't have Speedway over there. Dirt track, weird-looking bikes go go around and turn left uh, in a circle at 150 mile an hour or whatever it is. And I I turned up to watch this guy. Coach, coach these extreme athletes. And I ended up somehow getting roped into coaching this guy who'd had a list as long as your arm of injuries, as you can imagine, falling off a bike at 100 mile an hour, whatever it was. And I was doing the session. So I proceeded to do what I'd, this was probably five years ago, four years ago, proceeded to go through telling this guy, Aussie guy, cap, back to front, dodgy. Hawaiian shorts and a vest. You can picture the scene. I'm, I'm going through what I've been told, like ex- explain to this guy what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, for how long. I'd got about 10 seconds into the explanation and the guy who I was there to see, the coach, came over and said, what are you doing? I was like, I'm telling Chris what he needs to do. He's like, why? <laughs> you don't need to know. Just do it. Like, he doesn't care. Just get on with it. I was like, yeah, but like, no, 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 just do it. Just get him doing something now. You've got five seconds to get him doing something. And that was a big lesson for me on exactly that, telling people what they need to know, not how I think it should be because I want to impress this lad about how much I know. Like, he doesn't care. Correct. He wants to go home, and he probably wants to get back on his bike with a, you know, the massive injuries that he had because he didn't care. No, the, and
1: and again, it, it – I, I go back to what we spoke about at the very beginning, and work backwards. Um, you know, there's a, a terrible film called the rock with, uh, Nicholas Cage, Sean Connery and, uh, uh, Ed, uh, his name. but, um, you know, there's a, there's a line in it where, uh, Sean Connery speaking to Nicholas Cage about setting a, a, bomb or something and ask him Can he do it? Nicholas Cage replacement, you know, I'm going to do my best. Sean Connery's re- reply is, um, your best Lunars, losers whine about their best winners go home and kiss the prom queen. He <laughs> didn't use the word kiss, but, <laughs> the, the point, but the point, the point is that, you know, let's, let's get, uh, I think it was, was it Shankly or Paisley. You know, let's put the ball in the back of the net. We'll worry about, it. we'll discuss it afterwards. Let's, let's get the objective done. What do we need to get it done? And, and this is where, I uh, get a I talk about the the effective the effectiveness efficiency trade off. Effectiveness is how how well can you do something? You know, can you win the game? Can you score? Can you whatever? Efficiency is how how fast and how efficiently can you do it? The obviously effectiveness is the, is the key thing. Efficiency is the the cleanliness with which you can do it. The lack of energy, the the lack of leakage to use. The, you know, really popular term. So that's what you're always trying to, to do. And the understanding that not all players, not all athletes are the same. Um, and, you know, it, you know, it, it, it is, I refer to, 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 to the philosopher uh, Machiavelli, you know, and, and his writings about it, uh, about it in a, in a social scene, but it does. It comes down to not what's the, uh, you know, what's the best way to do it? What's the right way? How can we get this done in the most efficient, most effective way possible? Um, and it's not, you don't need to know everything. And one of the, for, for people coming through in the industry, it's also a recognition that, you know, sometimes we, we inherit a perception or an assumption that you need to understand everything about something before you implement it. Well, To be quite honest, science explains how a lot of things work. Like, believe it or not, gravity did exist before Isaac Newton. He just explained what happened. So, you know, performance exists people win games. Science will explain how subsequently, but you can't wait for it to happen. You do everything in good faith and in good practice, but don't wait for, you know, for the science to understand or to explain, um, you know, how things are are happening to you know today before you do it
0: and this comes on nicely to the next point which is um the storytelling now it's something that's come up again a little bit more recently and i suppose that that comes back to telling people what they need to know it might be a very short story you just got to paint that paint that picture very quickly or in two words or you get the guys like you say who want to know the horsepower and the what the engine looks like and how it performs. So you've got to know how to tell that story to two individual people who are completely different.
1: Yeah, and the the you know I was, I think we were in Texas playing a game and, and uh, you know coach, we're, coach made a comment to me one day. He said uh, he said you he said I've the guys in there for a meeting before a game like for an hour trying to tell them something, and I know half of them don't get it. He said he said you give them a twenty minute presentation during the week on. On recovery, and every single one of them remember what it is you told them. Why? Why is that? And it it does. It comes back to what I actually did was I just told them a funny story, and they all remembered. They all remember the punchline. They all remember the the one liner They remember the alliteration. They were this was their joke throughout the week. But they remembered it, and even still, players who left, um, uh, you know, who retired, will still tease me about certain stories. But this is where you know if you look at the the most successful teachers, um, you know, in 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 society or hi- historically, like one of the one of the most, uh, or, or yet, yeah, just look at uh, whether it's um, uh, looking at uh, at uh, religion. Look at uh, even Christianity, uh, the Muslim faith, the Hindu. They, they all essentially use stories. To illustrate a particular point, a parable, to explain uh, a particular point and get uh, a point across. And everybody acknowledges it's not the detail, it's the, the essence or the, the point of the story that, uh, you know, that was trying to be explained. And that's why if you're trying to get a point across to a group of people, telling a story is probably one of the fastest ways to get the point across. Because, and, and why it's so effective, Two key reasons. One is that you illustrate uh, a particular uh, a, a point, but you allow the interpretation of the story. Generally, people will draw the same conclusion from it, but they'll draw from it in their own in their own particular way. And it, it by telling them the story, you allow them to to learn from that. Uh, the second point is that incredibly important area in performance which a lot of people tend to to miss is the role of emotion so again just like a, a stimulus applied whether it's a training or recovery stimulus the emotion of a particular story <clears throat> will elicit and draw a conclusion uh, or a response from the person uh, and th- that emotional impact affects learning uh, and again that the emotional Load the emotional understanding of the player is critical to is critical to learning. And the emotional
0: involvement. So how do there. so how do coaches learn that skill? Like the coach was talking to you about, how does he learn that from you? I think this is where
1: the majority of uh, you know again. The, some of the, the most successful coaches, again, if you look back at, look historically back at, at look look at the great coaches, success leaves clues. Great coaches were generally great observers. They, the majority of the great coaches, whether it's a Ferguson, it's a Walsh, it's a Lombardi, it's a Doug Leach, these guys observed people over time, um, generally quite reserved people, um, uh, you know, socially. Uh, yes, in, in their own moments, they could be wonderful storytellers. But one of the greatest skills they would have is the ability to observe and, uh, and watch how people respond to different things. And that's where it is. And it's a, it was a learned skill. Nobody sat down, you know, and spoke to Alex Ferguson about how to, you know, manage emotion. These are things he learned... Uh, <laughs> working in a, in, a, in a bar, as he's written about himself, in a pub that he owned uh, years ago. Um, it's the same as Bill Walsh, who had a very, very long apprenticeship, was blackballed uh, essentially as a coach initially before he became uh, coach of the 49ers years ago. So the, uh, these coaches learned that skill themselves. So it's, it, it really comes from a patience and, and planning a pathway as a coach. And understanding how to deal with people. This is a, a people business. Um, but the, the role of the role of emotion is something that uh more and more coaches are starting to recognise, more and more coaches are starting to actually um you know record it in writing as a as a variable in practice. So identifying uh what is the emotion sometimes it's just simple color code what is the emotion of this particular session this particular drill because the emotion will drive the involvement will, will drive the uh, the involvement of both the athlete and the coaches and, and knowing not necessarily when to uh, increase the emotional load but actually when to withdraw that particularly in the days post a result post a, a game post a performance so that to allow um, the, allow the body to recover, allow the mind to recover, allow the the athlete as a human
0: to uh, recuperate and to, to to recover. So this is definitely my last question because I know it's like <laughs> it quarter quarter four quarter four yeah, in the morning there. there. Um, yes, yes. So for, for in a recovery session, for example, how can that emotional? What examples would you give for reducing that emotional load for players after a certain result? How well, could that be done practically? One of the one of the biggest issues that you you will find
1: in both in sport and in in, in military is that there's um, a failure to acknowledge the role of sport in in life in in the bigger picture. And you, I think it I think it's quite topical um you know back in the UK at the minute with um, when, when we talk about the mental health of, of players. But the one of the most important things to Reinforce and to help young athletes understand is what is the role of sport in life. Um, you know, sport exists in life, not the other way around. Sometimes they fall into the, the mistake and belief that this is everything and the only thing that they have. Uh, that's not the case. It's it's not true. So simply reinforcing that allows them to understand. You know, the fact that they had a great game or a terrible game at the weekend. Doesn't particularly uh, matter in the bigger scheme of things. That, that, simply that alone, that recognition, that reinforcement, it withdraws stress, allows them to look at things in context, and it removes that emotional, uh, uh filter that, um, and emotions are wonderful things, a wonderfully complex thing, um, it's a fascinating thing, it, it's a, it impacts performance, but, you need to withdraw it at times and look at things in a very clinically cold way. Um, one of the most important uh, points that um, you know I, I reinforce with with players and with coaches: there is no difference between winning and losing. Winning and losing doesn't matter. Obviously, it does. But what I'm saying, that the point I'm trying to make is the brutal, cold, clinical assessment you make of your performance. Whether you win or lose should be the exact same. Because if you don't apply that ruthless uh, uh, assessment of a loss um, or, or to a loss, you're not going to improve. If you get caught up in the emotion of the referee, the emotion of the opponent, whatever, you're not going to be able to clearly identify what it is that you need to improve. If you don't apl- apply that cold clinical ruthlessness to a success or to a victory, you're not going to identify the weakness that your opponent is seeing uh, that he's going to exploit next weekend. you again. You're going to fall into uh, a complacency. Uh, you're going to fall into a pride trap where uh, the complacency, which you, you, you're starting to demonstrate, is again going to prevent you continuously improving. You know, people throw around the, the Japanese phrase Kaizen without really understanding, which again is comes from manufacturing, but without really understanding what that constant improvement really, really means. Uh, and actually more important is is TQM, the total quality management approach of Japanese manufacturing, is how do we constantly improve quality? It's not about quantity, it's the, it's the quality. So uh, withdrawing the, the emotional load allows you to continuously, uh, ruthlessly improve um, while at the same time, uh, you know, removing stress. So this is why, while there are plenty of physiological studies to show that you must bring the guys in the morning after match to do a, you know, hot and cold or whatever it is you, you want to do, just give them the day off, mate. Just let them let them go away. Let them spend time with their, you know, their, their wife or their partner or whatever they want to do. Uh, let them get away. It gives you time to frame Again, frame that loss or win, whatever way you want to frame it. When they come back, uh, and you know you've got you've you've had time to assess the game. So again, that's how you manage the emotional load, and that has to be done as well for for your coaches, not just simply for for your players.
0: Nice. Well, thank you very much for the last not only the last fifty minutes, but the last an hour and fifty minutes for having the an hour chat beforehand. But I just wanted to um, to round up quickly and just ask you to let us know. Firstly, when you can when the book's out. Secondly, where people can get it, and then where people can find you. Yeah, so um, the,
1: the 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 book's available on Amazon. At the minute for pre order, uh, it'll be out August first. Um, I've got uh, one or two articles. I, I'll post uh, some snippets from it on. Uh, Maybe on my on my LinkedIn or my my Twitter uh, over the next little while, Um, but yeah, it's uh, available for pre order on Amazon, and uh, I'm looking forward to. I'm looking for. One or two people have have had a look at it so far, and uh, I think it will be. It'll challenge a a lot of uh, a lot of conventional thinking, but I think I'm safe to do that because I, like I said, I've not come through the traditional. Uh, sports science or performance route that that most have. So uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to have our uh, our thoughts <laughs> challenged every now and again. Mm-hmm. And what's the name of the book? The name is Game Changer, and
0: like uh, I say, it's available from Amazon both UK and uh, com. And last but not least, your Twitter handle, uh, Fergus Conley. Uh, Perfect. Happy days. Well, like I said, thanks a lot for your time and thanks for getting up ridiculously early to speak to me. And I will uh, let you go. We'll keep in touch. Thanks a lot, pal. Thanks for tuning in to episode 136 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Fergus. So more great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player to make sure you're up to date with everything that's going on with the podcast So hope you're enjoying all episodes so far. Um, Make sure you check out the archive as well. So 135 previous episodes um, that you can uh, hopefully enjoy. So thanks for tuning in again and I will speak to you very shortly.